Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. So we've been in a series that's taken us back to the classroom series called Covenant, with a subtitle of Lessons for Families. We've been unpacking a fair bit of the time, a model by the Baldwicks, a theological model for family relationships of covenant, grace, empowerment, and intimacy. One of the interests we've had is to ask the question, how do each of these theological concepts manifest themselves, play themselves out in the life of a contemporary marriage or family. And today we come to the theological concept of intimacy. Intimacy. So what is intimacy? I like the definition of intimacy that says intimacy is the ability of two people to be open with each other, vulnerable with each other, without the need to change the other. That's an important addition, without the need to change the other. Because if that's the true, we are set free to experience, explore, and enjoy the other person rather than manipulate, coerce, or change them. Intimacy. We were created, designed, wired for intimacy. You'll remember our passage from last week, Genesis 2.18, that describes God moving up to the creation of Eve with these words. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So this relationship of equality, because it was wired into us to say, I yearn for a deep, enduring relationship with another human being where we share intimacy. So our question is, how does that play itself out? in contemporary families, in particular in contemporary marriages. Well, if we're talking about marriage, one of the answers we get is it plays itself out in the bedroom, in the area of sex and sexuality. That if you want to know how intimate a couple is, ask how healthy their sexual life is. Now, actually, there's something to that, though I will argue that's not the best way. But there is something to it, even biblically. Because as I read Scripture, it seems to me that there are at least four purposes for which sex was given to us as a great gift by God. The first is bonding. Sex is a very bonding experience. Different biblical writers will argue that case. But at the beginning, it is said in Genesis 2, the two will become one flesh. So there is a bondedness to it. Secondly, not in any order of priority, is procreation. So God gave the direction, the instruction to go out and multiply and fill the earth. I think we've done a pretty good job of that. <laughs> so procreation, that's a second reason for sin. Third one is pleasure. 
If you take the Song of Songs and sit down with a Bible commentary to sort through some of the old metaphors, you quickly discover that that's woven into what sexuality is intended to be. And then finally is the reality of what we're talking about today of intimacy. Intimacy. It says there in that Genesis record, the man and his wife were naked and felt no shame. We're completely open with each other. Intimacy. So if we're asking, how do we measure the level of intimacy in a marriage? That's one of the answers that is given. But our interest in this is not only to measure it in a marriage, but to measure it in a family and in other relationships as well. There's another way to measure your level of intimacy in any relationship, including marriage. And that is to ask the question, how do we do in our life of communication? How well do we talk? How well do we share? How well do we know each other? How well do we know what's on one another's hearts? How well do we know the inside realities of this person we call husband or wife? How well do we know each other? How well do we communicate? That, I would contend, is the best measure of the level of intimacy any relationship has. Now, in this, in this series, we've been interested to ask the question, how does God treat his family in any one of these given areas? Because we want to model ourselves after God's interaction with and treatment of his family. So, first we would ask, is there an example in Scripture where we see God's heart on display? Where we understand his yearning for us as his family? And I think there are many, to be honest. I think the one that speaks to me the most profoundly, though, is found in John's gospel toward the end of his gospel. Those chapters, John 13 to 17, where Jesus spends that last evening with his disciples. In what he says that night, we find his heart on full display, open, out there, vulnerable, saying, this is what I desire. This is what I want. This is what I think of you. This is how much I want us to be bound together. It's in that section that Jesus says, like any good mother or any good father, he says, love each other. Just love each other. In fact, if you love each other, everybody will know what family you belong to. Love each other. And then seeing their furrowed brows, he says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. I know I'm going away, but I'll come back. I'll take you to be with me where I am. And then, knowing another fear they have, he says to them, I will not leave you as orphans. Don't worry. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'll send you the comforter to be with you forever. The comforter will continue to guide you. Comforter will tell you things I haven't even told you because you're not ready yet. So love each other because you're part of this family. Abide with me. In fact, he says, I want you to abide with me. I'll abide with you. I abide with my father. That'll draw all of us together. And it will be just like my mother used to say when we would come home for college for Christmas and we were all there. She would say, I can go to bed and I can sleep because all my kids are under one roof. It's what Jesus is saying. 
the Father and me and you and the Comforter, we're all together. That's what I yearn for. And then the last chapter, John 17, is his prayer. He prays for his own trial that he's about to face. But then he prays for his 12 disciples that have now become 11. And then he prays for us because he says, I'm praying for all of those who will come to believe on me through their word. And do you know what he prays? He says, I want my family to be like that. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, the disciples, the kiddos, we're all characterized by being one. That's the heart of Jesus. He just lays it out there. This is what I yearn for. He's being eminently vulnerable with his yearning and his desire. And what's amazing is, the ones with the ability to see that prayer, that desire answered, sit here in this sanctuary and in a thousand other worship centers like it. He's made himself that vulnerable to us. And he does so through his words, through his prayers. But it's not just one way. Not just divine down toward the human. It also is human up toward the divine. And again, we could go to many places to find that. I don't think there's a better one than Psalm 139. I love Psalm 139. If I were naming the Psalms, I would name that Psalm, He Knows My Name. Because in that Psalm, the psalmist David says for the first 22 verses, God knows everything about me from my beginning to my end. It doesn't matter where I go, I find him. If I rise to the heights, if I descend to the depths, he's always there. He knows when I go out, when I come in, he knows me fully. And because of that, it's really stunning how he ends the psalm. Because after saying all of that, he ends up by saying this in the last two verses. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. And know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. After he has just spent 22 verses saying, you know everything about me, he then prays and says, God, I'm throwing open the chambers of my soul to you. I want you to know me so well and so deeply that you'll be able to tell me things about myself that I don't even know. Search me. Test me. Try me. It's his yearning for intimacy with God. And it comes out in his words, in his prayers. So if that's the way it happens with God and his family, then what about us? Isn't that the way it ought to happen with us? That deep, open, vulnerable, meaning kind of communication that is, that is so real that we ought to really call it communion rather than just communication. So in the interest of that, I want to offer three areas of focus that might help us along those lines. And we're going to go back to the Proverbs to find a genesis for these. Because as we've already talked about in this series, if we're going to this book, especially as a proof text for specific things about marriage or family, the cultures are so dramatically different that we'll end up in some strange places. So we're going to Proverbs. Because that's the wisdom, wisdom of the ages. Understand, these Proverbs weren't written first and foremost for marriage, but their principles certainly apply there. 
So we'll focus largely on marriage here. But also, these principles can often apply across the board. So three areas of focus, three things on which we need to focus if we desire to have that deep and intimate communion within our marriages and with our, fa and with our families. The first one, first focus, focus on listening. Focus on listening. Here's the Proverbs, Proverbs 18, 13. Every one of these comes from Proverbs 18, but from different versions. This from the NLT. Spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. That's pretty simple. That's pretty direct. Spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. How many times have I done that? I know what the fix is. I know what the issue is. I know what I want to say, and I just spout off. Before listening to the facts, and the wise man says, that's shameful and foolish. So listen. Listening is hard, really hard. Back in Texas, they say that's as hard as woodpecker lips. Well, that's pretty much listening. It's as hard as woodpecker lips. It's not easy. Difficult. In fact, I read a piece this week in which the author said, look, we all like to talk, but we hate to listen. He said, to me, talking is like eating a cinnamon roll. Listening is like doing squats. <laughs> Nobody wants to do that. We don't want to listen. We just want to put out there what we're thinking, what we're feeling. Listening is hard work, but it is so vital. Tim Keller planted a church in New York City, in Manhattan no less, if church planning is hard, which I read that it is extremely hard, I can't imagine a greater challenge than church planning in Manhattan. And so he said when they went into that, he told his wife, I need three years, three years of insane schedules and commitments. It's going to be hard on our marriage. But if you'll stick with me for three years, we'll get through this, and then I'll take my, my, my foot off the gas pedal. Okay? Famous last word. Some of you may have read or heard the story, but he tells it here. The three-year mark came and went, and Kathy asked me, as we agreed, to cut back on my work hours. Just a couple more months, I said. I have this and that commitment that I have to see through. Just a couple more months. I kept saying that. The months flew by with no change. One day I came home from work. It was a nice day outside, and I noticed that the door to our apartment's balcony was open. Just as I was taking off my jacket, I heard a smashing noise coming from the balcony. In another couple seconds, I heard another smashing noise. I walked out onto the balcony, and to my surprise, I saw Kathy sitting on the floor. She had a hammer in one hand, and next to her was a stack of our wedding china. On the ground were shards of two smashed saucers. What are you doing? I asked. She looked up and said, you aren't listening to me. You don't realize that if you keep working this hours, you're going to destroy this family. I don't know how to get through to you. You aren't seeing how serious this is. This is what you're doing. And with that, she brought the hammer down on a third saucer. It splintered into pieces. I sat down trembling. I thought she had snapped. I'm listening. I'm listening, I said. As we talked, it became clear that she was intense and laser-focused. But she was not in a rage or out of control emotionally. She spoke calmly but forcefully. 
Her arguments were the same as they had been for months, but I realized how deluded I had been. There would never be a convenient time to cut back. I was addicted to the level of productivity I had achieved. I had to do something. She saw me listening for the first time. And we finally hugged. I inquired, when I first came out here, I thought you were having an emotional meltdown. How did you get control of yourself so fast? With a grin, she said, that was no meltdown. You see those three saucers I smashed? I have no cups for them. They broke years ago. <laughs> I had three saucers to spare. I'm glad you sat down before I had to break any more. <laughs> Did you listen to her first words to him? You're not listening. Any hope of good and deep and meaningful communication, any hope at deepening intimacy begins with listening. One of the most difficult activities with family members, especially when emotions get involved, listening. And yet we each knows how we recognize whether or not somebody's listening to us. It's typically in things like eye contact, Body language, nodding, shaking your head, feedback, questions, mirroring is a big one. So a week or two ago, Southeastern California Conference Adventist Churches, the sisterhood of churches in this area of California, had a required pastor's meeting. The speaker was Todd Bolsinger, professor of leadership down at Fuller Seminary. I'd had Todd out for something before, had gotten to know him. So at, at a time when he divided the group up into discussion groups, I went up on stage because I wanted to ask him a question about an upcoming event. I walked up, and we had the chance to talk for two or three minutes, and he was very helpful, answered my questions. We connected. I walked back to my seat feeling like, man, he really listens well. I did not know it, but one of our pastoral team, I think it may have been Linda, took a picture of Todd and me, actually of me talking to Todd, and then sent it out to the pastoral group. And I looked at that and I said, how can you mirror any better? <laughs> Look at that. I'm the one talking to him, and he is totally dialed in just as I am communicating. And I walked away feeling hurt. So there are many things that can tell us this person is listening to me. If you do that to a loved one, a sibling, a friend, a spouse, you will give them a great gift because there is something powerful in the gift of attention. Attention and focus. So let me just say one other thing about these little devices some of you may have. All of you do have that have had such a profound impact on our ability to communicate. I read some literature this week about them. There was the Journal of Pediatrics reported, the New York Times picked up the story on a study that was done in the Boston area, 55 different families who did not know they were being observed at fast food joints around the city by researchers and watching them. Do you know what they found? They found that these families, parents and kids, we're having a profound time communicating because of the devices, not because the kids were on them, but because the parents were on them. The parents were the problem. 
That's matched by Andy Crouch, written a couple of books on this. He said, one of the things that we found when we talked to families is that we have kids telling us, I wish my mom, I wish my dad would get off their device. And listen to me. We may have had it backwards in terms of who's responsible. So another piece I read this week, the author made a suggestion. He said, next time you go out to eat, friends, family, you want to connect in conversation? So here's what I recommend. Make a cell phone stack in the middle of the table. Thank you. Make a cell phone stack in the middle of the table, all the cell phones stacked up right in the middle of the table, and the first person to answer a ding or a beep or a whiz or a ring or whatever, first person to answer pays the bill. <laughs> or if you want to do it at home, same cell phone stack, first person to touch it washes the dishes. All in the endeavor to say, listen, it's where it begins. Remember what the proverb said? Spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. But there's a second focus we need, and that's understanding. Because we all know that listening by itself does not guarantee understanding. That they are two different things, though they are connected and related. Listen to this proverb, Proverbs 18:2. Fools have no interest in understanding. I didn't write that, by the way, just to be clear. Fools have no interest in understanding. They only want to air their own opinions. New Living Translation. It's not writing specifically about marriage or family, but wow, can it apply. Fools have no interest in understanding. So we listen in order to understand. To understand the other person's perspective, their viewpoint, their point. That can be challenging. Because so often we tend to talk past each other. Do you remember the story? Remember the story of the man who's in the hot air balloon? He's going to meet a friend. He's gotten lost. He's an hour late. He brings the balloon down and he's surveying the landscape until he sees a woman down there. He calls out to her, man. I'm going to meet a friend. I'm an hour late. I don't know where I am or how to get there. Can you help me? Can you tell me where I am? She looks up at him, quiet for a minute, and then she says, yes. You're hanging from a hot air balloon about 30 feet in the air in a basket. You are at this location latitudinally and this location longitudinally in terms of where you're located on the map. That's where you are. He's quiet for a minute. And then he says, are you an engineer? She says, yes, I am. How did you know? He says, because you've given me information that is technically correct, but it hasn't helped me at all. I'm as lost as I was when I first met you. And furthermore, now that we've had this conversation, I'm even further behind. <laughs> she listens. Then she says to him, are you a manager? He says, yes, I am. How did you know? She says, because you don't know where you are or where you're going. You've made a promise you can't keep. You've gotten up to where you are because of a bunch of hot air. You expect people beneath you to fix your problems. And furthermore, we barely met, and you're already blaming everything on me. <laughs> and that's the way it can be in communication, missing each other, failing to understand. So is there something that will help me to understand that person? I'm glad you asked. I think there is. 
And I think it's stated well by Les and Leslie Parrott, two marriage and family therapists, Christians, written a lot. They've written this book called Trading Places. The opening story in their book is an illuminating one. They're about to go on a television show to be interviewed in this story. Our viewers want to know the most important thing they can do for their marriage, the producer of the show told us. We were sitting in plush leather chairs, sipping bottled water out of straws in the green room of the famous Harpo Studios in Chicago. Oprah's likely to ask you, the producer continued, if you could give one suggestion to a couple for improving their marriage, what would it be? We didn't have to think twice. In fact, it wasn't the first time we'd been asked. We hear this question a lot. In nearly every interview we do on marriage, whether it's print, radio, or television, this question is predictable. Why? Probably because regardless of the topic, we all would like to know how to get to the heart of the matter. Think about it. Wouldn't you like to know the most important thing you can do to keep your kids off drugs, to save more time, to extend your life, to make the perfect souffle, to stop global warming, to get a promotion? Whatever the topic, we like to know the one key thing, what matters most. What's the essential element, that indispensable and vital factor for success? Well, when it comes to that crucial component in a successful marriage, there's no need to guess. We stand on a mountain of research and clinical expertise when we tell you the answer. In a word, it is empathy. Empathy. It's putting yourself in your partner's shoes the happiest couples on earth are those who become adept at trading places. What is my partner's experience of this? What would it be like to be in his skin, in her skin, in his shoes, in her situation? What are they feeling right now? How do they view this? Empathy putting yourself in the other person's skin because of empathy can deeply increase the understanding that you have of them. In fact, I read a question years ago, probably decades ago. I'm not even sure if I was married yet. But it was a question that burned itself into my mind. And when I think about it these days, enough to keep me awake at night, it was in a very scholarly journal called the Reader's Digest. <laughs> but the author, writing about marriage and writing about empathy, said this. A good question to ask yourself is, what would it be like to be married to me? What would it be like to be married to me? That's a rough question. That question makes me want to go to Anita and say, I'm, I'm so sorry. I mean, I feel for you. I'm sad for you. Please, how can I help you? How can I support you? How can I care? Because I would hate being married to me. But what it also does is it creates empathy. And what empathy does is it can be the fertile soil in which understanding grows deepens. And as we listen and as our understanding grows and deepens, the sense of intimacy that grows out of communication will also deepen. So you want an intimate relationship, an intimate marriage? Listen and understand. Thirdly, 
The third focus that's very meaningful is not only listening, not only understanding, but thirdly, responding. Responding. We listen in order to understand. We understand in order to respond. So listen to this proverb. This is from the message paraphrase. This is well done. Words kill. Words give life. They're either poison or fruit you choose. Words kill. Words give life. They're either poison or fruit you choose, the message, Proverbs 18.21. Part of what the wise man is saying there is our words will have a result. There will be a response, either poisonous in that it damages the relationship or fruit in that it grows it. It becomes deeper, more satisfying, more nourishing. And all of that happens out of our response. One of the ways we can tell whether or not we listened is if we understand. One of the ways we can tell if we understand is if we responded. Because we are then changed. So Dennis Guernsey, great little book, years old now, but well worth the time. The Family Covenant, Love and Forgiveness in the Christian Home. It's been very helpful in this series. He writes this, The phenomenon of listening is at the heart of a critical matter for Christian parents, the issue of obedience. As Christian parents, we recognize the need for our children to learn obedience, but they often learn the opposite. The etymology of the Greek word, to obey, provides a clue to the problem. The root of the word obey in the Greek New Testament is to listen. Obey and listen, same root. It is the same root that we find in acoustic, such as acoustic guitars or acoustic ceilings. To obey means to listen and respond. How can we get them to listen? Probably they will listen if they have been listened to. In this sense, listening is a vital dimension in the context of parenting. Parents usually respond at this point with fear. What if they, the parents, become permissive and compliant? Admittedly, I risk being a soft touch and a pushover. But the greater issue to me is hearing and being heard. I'm willing to trade an occasional incident in which I am manipulated for, for the time when the chips are down and my children listen to what I have to say and respond appropriately. In covenant families, the members hear and are heard by each other. So, with kids, the response is obedience, hopefully. With adults, the response is, well, it depends what you're talking about. But it becomes evident that you are responding out of the conversation and the understanding that has developed. Response-ability. Now, there's something that makes this hard. So go back with me to probably grade school and remember when we were learning math formulas. I think many of us have this math formula in our heads. And this makes it very hard to listen. When we don't listen, we don't understand. When we don't understand, we don't change. Listening equals agreeing. Listening equals agreeing. That is a formula that I think many of us have in our minds. Many of us have it there. 
And because when we're in family relationships, these are people we know very well, when we get into a topic with which we know we don't agree, and if we believe this, then we can't listen. Because listening equals agreeing. I know I don't agree with you on this, so I stop listening. What if we simply do this? Remember when we did that in grade school? What did that mean? means it does not equal that. Listening does not equal agreeing. It just equals listening. Listening. Hearing what's being said. I'll tell you two incidents when that was true in my life. First was when I was very, a very young person in my chosen field. I'm trying to protect identities here. But anyway, I went to see the head honcho at Hefe. And I was scared to death because he was larger than life to me, and I was very young, wet behind the ears, and very timid. But there was something I needed to talk through him that I wanted to be true in what I was doing and so forth. He agreed to meet with me. I went in, big office, chairs all the way around the outside. I sat on the far end. He walked around, sat behind his desk, picked up an 11 and a half or legal-sized paper and a pad and said, i, I got to write a letter, but, but, but go ahead. And then he started writing a letter while I was talking to him. Wrote a letter. And I told him and shared with him. And when I finished, he looked up and said, well, I understand, but I think we're going to need to keep it this way. Was there anything else? I was way too intimidated to say anything else, so I just said no, and I left. I was furious inside. I thought that was demeaning, disrespectful, damaged future possibilities for relationship. He didn't hear anything I said because he didn't listen. He didn't understand because he didn't understand there was no hope to respond in a way that might help both of us. Contrast that with some quite a few years later. I was working at the chaplain's office at the medical center. Jerry Davis was my boss. There was something in the department that was going on. I asked Jerry if I could talk to him about it. Went into his office. He sat down. There was no table or anything between us. He sat down and said, what's on your mind? What's on your heart? And I opened up and I began to share. And he listened, looked at me, asked questions, clarified things, made suggestions. And, and we talked. At the end of which he said, I understand what you're saying. But it needs to remain this way for these reasons. Sorry to disappoint you, but that's kind of the way it is. I remember walking out of his office. I wasn't excited that he didn't agree with me. I wished he had agreed with me. But I felt respected and valued and heard and understood. And his response remained open to the relationship. Listening does not equal agreeing. It means listening. And it's where it all begins that hopefully will lead us in the direction of the ability to respond. And when we respond, our intimacy deepens because our communication has been robust. Now, if that is true, if the old wise man is correct in what he says, then why don't we do it more often? Why don't we talk more? I think the most obvious and simple, not simplistic, but simple answer is the distraction of life, the busyness of life. 
that's true in my life. It's probably true in yours as well. We cannot deny that reality. But I think there's something deeper, something deeper that keeps us from talking in the ways we could as marriages and in families. And it's this one four-letter word, fear. Fear. Fear often keeps us from communicating in the most robust and healthy ways. You say, I'm not afraid. Maybe you're not. But at least consider this. There are three or four realities which can cause fear in being vulnerable and intimate in a relationship. The first reality that we often fear is rejection. If I open up and I'm vulnerable and I share with this person the reality of what's going on with me, even if it's a family member, they'll look at me like, dude, you're crazy, you know. Mm. And we get pushed away. We fear rejection. And so that fear keeps us muted. Secondly, we fear abandonment. And this is a fairly common one. People who have been deeply hurt, somehow relationally, will often crave that intimacy and yet build walls around themselves because they say when you open up and you get vulnerable and people get close to you and you love them and you depend on them, they leave you. They disappoint you. I can't take that again. And so they shut down, fearing abandonment. A third fear that people often have is the fear of engulfment. Engulfment. What does that mean? It means if I let someone in here, I'll never be able to get them out. If I open up and be vulnerable, then I can't draw boundaries. I had a friend who asked me when I was back in school, can I drop by and stay at your place in the dorm for a couple of nights? I said, yes. Two weeks later, he was still there, and I was like, dude, you got to go. you got to leave. He finally left. About two months later, he called and said, can I stay there again? I said, no, <laughs> because I was afraid I couldn't get him out. And sometimes people feel that way. If I let my spouse in to this level, I won't be able to preserve some of my own agency. So it can be a fear of engulfment. One of the most common fears, however, is the fear of conflict. Conflict. We don't open up and talk because we say, uh, that's going to be a problem. And we're going to end up in a thing, and we don't want to end up in a thing, so we just won't talk about it. And we stay away from it. But here's the good news. The Spirit of Jesus empowers us to face our fears. The Spirit of Jesus inspired the words that got scratched onto the biblical page, perfect love cast out fear. So we can face our fears, and we can face them with support and help, allowing us to deepen our communication levels and thereby grow toward a mature and profound intimacy. So I have an assignment for you this week. It's a very simple assignment. Everyone can do it. Here's the assignment. Find somebody important in your life. Could be a spouse, could be a child, could be a parent, could be a sibling, could be a friend. Somebody important in your life and spend one hour this week doing this. One hour. Put, this up, put a cell phone stack or whatever you want to do. Put that aside and spend one hour in communication. Maybe you say, we don't know what to talk about. In our marriage, we drive along, we're quiet, we sit at the restaurant. It's embarrassing because we never know what to say. It's just sitting there staring at each other. 
So get yourself this little book, very simple little book called Love Talk Starters by Les and Leslie Parrott. Love Talk Starters. It's 275 questions. That's all it is, questions, just questions that you can ask to get a conversation going. So let's see here. Um, if the phone rang and it was God on the line, just call him to check in, what would you say and why? Talk about that. Or how about this one? Simone Signore once said, chains do not hold a marriage together. It is threads, hundreds of tiny threads which sew people together through the years. What tiny threads have woven us together this week? And talk about it. Here's a good one. If you were a pastor and were going to preach a sermon on marriage, what would the topic be? <laughs> there you go. You can talk about that. But spend an hour in some form of open communication with one of the most precious people in your lives and pray that God will open you up, will open your ears, and will mute your mouth at key times so that by the end, your hearts are beating together in much greater unison than they were to begin with. And I'll be praying for you. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.